Hello, and welcome once again to the Necromancers of the Northwest podcast. We've got the king of all shows for you here today, as it's the end of Nobility Week here at NNW, and we've been putting up nobility-themed content on our website all week. Today is no exception, and we'll be spending most of today looking at the nobles in your game. That's going to come a little bit later, though. Right now, we're going to go ahead and review something. Odds are fairly good that if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a fan of Pathfinder, or at the very least, of Dungeons & Dragons 3.5 edition. After all, it's the Necromancers of the Northwest podcast, and generally speaking, the content we make at Necromancers of the Northwest is for Pathfinder and the 3.5 OGL, and even the podcast takes a heavy bent towards these in particular games. It is also, then, a fairly safe bet that you are a fan of fantasy and adventure, most likely in a pseudo-medieval European fashion. After all, once again, Pathfinder and Dungeons & Dragons games tend to be exactly that. Knights in shining armor save princesses from dragons, and old, knowledgeable wizards save the kingdom with their arcane lore or a powerful spell. <coughs> it is because of this information that I am confident you'll be interested in the product that I'm reviewing today. You see, when it came time to look for a book to review for Nobility Week, I was a little disappointed to discover that I couldn't seem to find any Pathfinder or D&D products that were particularly geared towards princesses, kings, dukes, or even barons or ladies. I considered simply reviewing something that didn't fit the theme, but decided that before doing that, I would take a moment to look and see if I could find anything from a different system. You see, even though most of the content we make on our website is geared toward Pathfinder and 3.5, the podcast is supposed to be primarily about two things, editorial content and raw entertainment. Admittedly, some days are more editorial than others, and we don't always have time to talk about design philosophy. And, admittedly, some days were funnier than others. But the point is that there's not much reason why the podcast should strictly be about Pathfinder, especially considering that relatively few gaming groups are completely married to one single rules set and never try any other games ever on pain of death. In fact, many groups appreciate a wide variety of role-playing games, of which Pathfinder and Dungeons & Dragons are just examples. And rather than simply telling you to avoid, or in theory look into, certain third-party supplements you were unlikely to ever consider in the first place, now I might be able to steer you onto an entire new fun and perhaps undersung game uh, that will let you mix up your game days a bit. So, what is this game that I found that is so perfect for Nobility Week? I'm glad you asked. The game taps into perhaps the most famous figure of nobility in all of medieval lore, and according to many historians, history. King Arthur. The game is called Pendragon, and even though you've probably never heard of it, I certainly hadn't, it's already in its fifth edition. The fifth edition core rulebook is authored by Greg Stafford, who seems to have been intimately involved in all of the previous editions of the game. It is published through Arthaus Games, and the book itself is 234 pages long. So, what exactly is Pendragon, and why would someone want to play it instead of another game? Well, it quickly becomes apparent once you open the book that this is not a game of generic medieval European fantasy. No, the author of this book has a deep and abiding love for Arthurian literature, and it shines through prominently in just about every page of the book. For those of you who don't know, and for whatever reason can't figure it out, Arthurian literature refers to literature written about King Arthur and his various knights. <coughs> I have no doubt that you're familiar with some of the more famous characters from this body of literature, Arthur himself, the knight Lancelot, the wizard Merlin, and if you're particularly well informed on the subject, you might know of Queen Guinevere and the evil knight Mordred, and perhaps a few of the other knights. You might also have learned everything you know from the Monty Python movie. Who knows? The point is that people have been writing about the exploits of Arthur and his knights for hundreds of years with wildly differing portrayals to the extent that it really is possible to specialize in Arthurian literature as a historian. And while it's easy for us in a modern age to simply write the tales of 
Arthur's Knights off as just another medieval fantasy story. They really are much more than that, and I think that that is, in large part, what the author was trying to show with this book. Whatever the case, it's clear that even on the, even on the credits page, it's clear uh, just how deeply the author cares about his material, as there is a paragraph entitled About the Cover, which explains the obscure tale of Arthur and the Troet Boar, something depicted on the cover of the book. While this little tidbit of information doesn't have all that much to do with the game, it again serves to underscore that the author isn't simply someone cashing in on Arthur's name, and that this game isn't going to be another generic medieval fantasy game. It's going to be Arthurian, with a capital A, and that may have effects on the game that those of us who know Arthur only from Mr. Python may or may not expect. The book begins with an introduction, which covers most of what you would expect from the introduction to a role-playing game. The classics are there, from the cops and robbers analogy to talking about how you're like an actor who can also control the script. If you're somehow new to role-playing and have been listening into the podcast so far simply because you love the sound of my voice, this information may be of use to you. Otherwise, you'll probably skip right past it. If you do, you'll most likely also skip over the sections that talk about which version of Arthur this game is based on. This has to do with what I said before about Arthurian literature being rich and complex, and the author talks about the major types of Arthurian legend, English, French, Welsh, modern, and so on, and explains what they are and how this book relates to them. For those of you that are wondering, the book is primarily based on a mix of English and French versions. After some more background information on how rolling dice works and what die 20 means, the introduction ends and we move on to the first chapter entitled The Pendragon Realm. This is the chapter devoted to giving background information about the medieval European world of Pendragon, which is strikingly similar in many ways to the historical medieval Europe. In fact, it quickly becomes clear that while the game does have magic and dragons and fae and other fantasy elements, the game clearly belongs in the low fantasy genre, and it's entirely possible without any real effort to completely remove magic and monsters from the game entirely, but we'll come back to that later. For now, it gives a breakdown of recent history, the political and religious state of England, its various regions and peoples, and so on. Overall, the information is pretty well-grounded, historically speaking, and if you're familiar with medieval European history, you'll likely feel a bit gratified to see that your knowledge will, in fact, be of some use in your game of Pendragon. Unlike, for example, in Pathfinder, where your DM is a lot less likely to be happy when you ask why, for example, you're going to a courthouse and being tried before a judge, instead of being taken to the local lord's manor, as medieval lords were the ones to dispense such justice. The one incredibly notable exception to this rule has to do with the Catholic Church. You see, there is one. Despite the game being set in the 500s AD, more on that later, the author has separated Christianity into two types, British Christianity and Roman Christianity. The former is marked less by its differing religious beliefs, though there are some of those, but more by the fact that each priest or parish answers only to God, whereas the Roman Church has a hierarchy leading all the way back to Rome and the Pope. While this might be an accurate issue from, say, the 8 or 900s to perhaps as late as the 11th or 12th century, anyone who knows anything about the history of the t that time knows that the Catholic Church, as we know it today, simply didn't exist in the time the book addresses. I would assume that the anachronism is deliberate, and that the author felt it was more important to represent both types of Christianity than to form an accurate history lesson. And if so, that's great. I can't be sure, though, because unlike so many other things in this book, there's no sidebar discussing the fact that Catholicism is cropping up several centuries early. I only bring it up because one of the things that I personally find charming about the book is its slavish deference to historical accuracy in many other regards, and this one difference is so strikingly different to anyone who can appreciate that accuracy that I felt it bore mention. Moving on through the chapter, it explains that the process one must go through in order to become a knight 
the idea behind feudalism, the three major classes of feudal society, some important customs and laws of knightly society that may not be intuitive today, such as those of hospitality and honor, the medieval approach to marriage and divorce, and so on. Once you've finished Medieval History 101, it's time for you to actually start making characters. If you're used to games like Pathfinder or D&D and are itching to roll up Merlin's younger cousins or some other kind of spellcaster, you're in for a bit of a disappointment. Pendragon doesn't feature character classes and doesn't really support the idea of PC spellcasters, clerics, priests, or even sneak thieves and bandits. You can play something that would qualify as a rogue, but he'll fight on horseback and wear heavy armor. Uh... As the author explains elsewhere in the book, the game is about being one of Arthur's knights, and ultimately just isn't intended to allow players to play as those things. Uh, while this certainly hurts the game in terms of giving it a narrow range, it also helps by giving it a focus on what it is that it's designed to do, allow you to play a chivalrous knight. If you haven't figured it out by now, it should quickly be becoming apparent that if you want just want a light and fluffy generic fantasy game, then Pendragon probably won't be your speed. On the other hand, if romantic tales of chivalry and courtly love can pique your interest and you appreciate a more realistic approach to medieval Europe, you're probably getting pretty excited. Sadly, it's time for another disappointment. There's not exactly a wealth of different backgrounds to choose from when it comes to being a knight. The book only supports knights from a specific region of England, and if you wanted to be from a different nationality or just wanted to be from somewhere else in England, you're out of luck. Further, you will be playing as the first son of a knight, meaning you can't be second or third son, and you can't come from a different background. Admittedly, the last bit is pretty realistic, as the class system in medieval Europe wasn't exactly fluid, and you weren't really supposed to be able to break into knighthood, but the fact remains that the trope is quite popular, and it would have been nice to see the rules bent a little bit, especially because there have been historical exceptions to this rule. The book implies that there will be rules elsewhere for these sorts of things, but I couldn't find them. Uh, they weren't in the core rules, which I didn't expect them to be, but... There also, appears, there also doesn't appear to have been any expansions with that kind of material published for 5th edition Pendragon, despite it being out for seven years. It's possible that if you dig through some of the older editions, you might find this kind of information and be able to update it to the current rules, but I'm not sure. I wouldn't bring it up at all, except that the region the character comes from applies some bonuses and restrictions and adjusts some starting skills, meaning that it has a real mechanical effect on the game, and so it feels almost incomplete not to include information on at least a couple of different regions. Something that might strike most players curious about the game is that it has no intelligence, charisma, wisdom, or similar scores. While the game does have a strength, dexterity, and constitution, it is decidedly lacking in any mental attributes. This is on purpose, and the reason is explained in a sidebar. Unlike most RPGs, Pendragon makes no attempts to circumvent the fact that a character's intelligence will really be limited by his player, and simply doesn't attempt to produce mechanical rules for it. If you want to play an unintelligent character, you certainly can, but ultimately that's up to you. There's no int score telling you that he needs to be played at a certain level of cleverness. While some might find this lazy or haphazard, I personally find the idea to be incredibly refreshing and liberating. Unfortunately, the sentiment is tainted a bit by one of the other systems the game uses, personality traits. In fact, personality traits are quite likely the most extensive section of Pendragon's rules, and they are in large part a core of the game. So, what are they? A collection of 13 pairs of traits, such as chaste and lustful, or modest and, modest and proud, and the like. Your character has a rating in each trait, somewhere between 1 and 20, with the opposite trait getting whatever number adds to the first to make 20. For example, a character with chaste 19 would be very chaste, and would have a lustful score of only 1. Whatever your character is presented, whenever your character is presented with a moral quandary, at GM discretion, he might have to roll against a trait to see how he reacts. 
For example, if the aforementioned character encountered a seductress, he would roll a die 20. The result, if the result was less than or equal to his chaste score, he would resist her advances. If he rolled a natural 20, though, he would have to check his lustful score, in which case, for in this example, if he rolled a natural 1, he would be forced to give in. Luckily, you don't need to roll against these traits all the time. You don't, for example, generally need to make a check to see how much boar your knight eats or whether he washes behind his ears in the bath. Typically, these traits are supposed to be used for important story points and for characters who aim to have particularly outstanding personality features rather than to usurp control from the players. Think of it like this. How many times have you played a game of D&D and had someone choose to sleep outside because he didn't want to have to spend three silver pieces on a room? Or go through a dungeon spending 20 minutes searching every five-foot square because they were afraid of traps? Or gladly wade through a heap of stinking refuse on the off chance it might have some treasure buried beneath all that sewage? The idea here seems to be that it's easy to say that you resist the advances of the beautiful fey woman because, after all, you just know that she's trouble because you've watched too much TV and read too many books to ever trust a seductress. And you're not there, not really being tempted. It's different for the character who is there and doesn't know anything about femme fatales and can't see that smirk on the GM's face, but can see quite a bit of the woman in question. Now, despite all of that, in practice, the effect of, persona of the personality trait system will depend heavily on your GM, and the system in general seems to invite cases where players will feel frustrated and like they have lost control of their characters. According to the author, though, these roles should really only come up in two different cases. When there are unusually strong circumstances, using the above example, the seductress might in fact be enchanted with unearthly beauty, or the knight may have fallen under a love spell, and when the knight has an unusually strong trait. Uh, traits 16 and above are considered to be extraordinarily strong, and those 5 and below are extraordinarily weak. Uh, characters receive benefits from having incredibly strong traits, and as a result, are more often required to make roles related to those traits. The author defends the system by explaining that Arthurian literature is largely about characters with larger-than-life personalities, and this is certainly true. For all the difficulties and pitfalls of the personality trait system, it does lend itself well to the source material, and it also serves the important purpose of creating differences between different player knights, as these personality traits are the best way for a knight player to distinguish himself, unlike D&D, for example, where one player might be a knight, another a cleric, a third a wizard, and so on. This chapter also con contains a discussion of female characters and women in Pendragon. In what seems to be a very uncharacteristic concession to modernity, the author states that while women were almost universally barred from knighthood in historical medieval Europe, this need not be the case in your game. Though the default assumption is that women will not be knights, and that those that are will have to overcome social stigma, the possibility is presented, if somewhat reluctantly, that females of the realms might be just be considered the equals of their male counterparts in every way, and that a female knight would raise no eyebrows. With this formality out of the way, the book continues on to Chapter 3, Family and Fatherland. In this chapter, we move away from game mechanics again and back into background information, as the book describes the area of England that all knights using the core rules are forced to come from. Before that, though, there are a series of tables that allow you to randomly generate your family history back through your grandfather, essentially auto-adventuring for your father and grandfather. This can have a few mechanical effects on your character, but mostly it just serves to transform one aspect of character creation, the backstory, into a fun game. I've always been a fan of involved character creation, like that in, for example, Mongoose's Traveler, and think that this is kind of cool, albeit a bit simplistic. I also wouldn't have minded a section with advice for GMs who wanted to make a similar backstory generator for other backgrounds, like French or German, for example. 
The rest of the character, the rest of the chapter contains the information I mentioned before about the background information from the place of your character's birth. Uh, but then also goes on to talk about what different kinds of castles are like and some guidelines for travel times, making the chapter feel rather cluttered. We'll see more randomly interspersed background information throughout the book as it simply keeps spilling over and refuses to stay in the chapters devoted to it. In any case, this brings us to Chapter 4, Stats and Skills, which predictably goes over the various game statistics and how they are used. First up is Traits, which we've largely discussed already. Also included are Passions, which are similar to Traits, but more unidirectional. For example, a knight likely has a passion of loyalty to his lord, possibly to several lords, and any time that loyalty is challenged, he might have to roll to see if he can overcome this passion. Similarly, a knight might hate Saxons with a passion, or love a certain woman, etc., this chapter also talks about dexterity rolls, which are made for things like balancing, climbing, jumping, and throwing, and about skills, which are divided into knightly skills, like hunting and riding, and non-knightly non -knightly skills, like sewing and accounting. After chapter 4 is chapter 5, game mechanics. It isn't until this section that we finally learn what kind of dice are rolled for various things, and what, for example, a critical success and a fumble are. The, result, the rules, in general, are fairly simple. When you need to make a check, roll a die 20, and if the result is less than your relevant score, you succeed. There are numerous modifiers and things to complicate this, but at its heart, that's what's going on. Something Call of Cthulhu players will find familiar. If you succeed on a check in a way that's important or dramatic, you get an experience check, and later can roll to try to increase whatever it was. Uh, this applies to passions and traits as well, as skills and, and various other things. This chapter also explains glory, which functions somewhere between a character's level and a scorecard. Uh, knights gain glory by doing impressive things. For every 1,000 glory they gain, they gain a benefit, like increasing a skill. Probably more importantly, though, glory marks a kind of knightly status. So knights with more glory are awarded more respect than knights with less glory. Glory is probably the major resource in most Pendragon games, and this section talks largely about the ways and amounts in which it should and shouldn't be handed out. The chapter also addresses the winter phase of the game. You see, part of the assumption is the game of the game is that there will be roughly one quest per game year, as knights are busy, for one, but also so that time can pass and the game goes on. More on this in a second. In order to facilitate this, players can only make use of glory and experience to increase their stats during winter, when it's assumed that there's less adventuring happening. This, of course, doesn't prevent winter adventures for GMs interested in them. In addition to cashing in rewards, though, the winter phase is also the time when your character, if he is over age 35, checks to see if he is starting to show his age. Older characters slowly have their attributes deteriorate until they eventually wither away and die. Luckily, the game accounts for this by providing rules for having a family and rearing children, so that ideally, when your knight finally does die, whether from old age or from a rampaging dragon, his son and heir can step in as your next player character. And unlike D&D, you don't need to feel bad about it either. It's encouraged. As such, the winter phase is also when you determine if you have had a child this year, once you find a suitable wife, of course, and then check to see if any of your children have died, etc. Uh, now, to be honest, when I heard about the system for establishing a dynasty and family legacy, I was excited, and I was a little disappointed by what I found. There's nothing strictly wrong with the system, and players who don't really care that much about their knight's home life will probably be relieved that such issues can be addressed by only, one, only two or three die rolls. But the fact is that those are really all the checks there are. There's no checks for formative events in the child's life, which, considering the robust personality trait system, feels like a bit of a waste. I would have liked to have seen something that would help shape the heir's personality and possibly skills, effectively building the next character through the former's parenting, etc. This was sadly not to be, 
though there's nothing stopping an industrious GM from adopting something along these lines, and it's worth mentioning that few role-playing games would even touch the issues of Dynasty and Procreation as much as Pendragon has, so even if it's not an ideal handling, it does still deliver what it promises, providing rules for determining whether or not you have children, and which, if any, survive. Chapter 6 is all about combat. There's only so much to say here, really. You and your opponent get one action each turn, typically attacking. You make opposed rolls, and the loser takes damage, which is lessened by the armor he's wearing. Particularly powerful blows might knock a knight down. The system is simple and straightforward, but not any more simple than, for example, melee combat in D&D, and some of the optional rules make things a little more involved. Wounds are also addressed, and as the game lacks magical healing, it's no doubt that you take a long time to heal. Uh, in general, you can regain about one-tenth your maximum hit points for each week of game time, meaning it takes ten weeks to heal from the brink of death. There are some treatments that can speed the process somewhat, but convalescing will likely be a part of the game. Of course, there are rules for what happens when you decide to ignore your chirurgeon and go off on an adventure despite all that. You take more damage, uh, meaning that reckless players will be no more bedridden than they want to be. Finally, this chapter has rules for handling skirmishes, which are larger fights with greater numbers of units. These, I'm sad to say, are sorely lacking. Essentially, the PC's fight is normal, and then, when he feels like it, the GM makes a single check, modified by the leadership ability of the two sides' commanders. The result indicates who is winning and by how much. As written, the size and skill of the two armies has no effect on the outcome, and while that can be resolved by simply adjusting the modifiers on the roll, the fact remains that this is less a system and more a write-in. Uh, still, there are rules for handling what happens to an army after the battle, i.e. how many men were wounded, killed, or captured, how many of them did we capture, etc., are pretty good, and could be useful to GMs. They won't tell you who gets captured, killed, or wounded, though, so you won't be entirely off the hook. Uh, that brings us to Chapter 7, Ambition and Faith. Uh, this chapter talks about nobility and about religion, and is largely background information. There are a few pieces of information about handling PCs who have been elevated to high noble rank, but this is fairly lacking and is unlikely to be of much use to GMs who want to run games with powerful PC nobility. This brings us to Chapter 8, Matters of Wealth. Uh, this chapter starts by describing the different states of knightly wealth, from impoverished to superlative, and the bonuses or penalties for each. It then proceeds to give a lot of background information about ways nobility might collect money and what they spend it on, but doesn't really uh, tie any game mechanics into any of it. It then gives price lists for a variety of goods. After this are several appendices, which give information on, in order, developments that arise later in the game, i.e. the rise of courtly love and chivalry once Arthur takes, actually takes the throne, the development of plate mail armor, etc., a number of sample NPCs and monsters, a very brief and somewhat unsatisfactory introductory scenario, although this section does contain the seed of some very cool ideas about adventures in ruling your own land, and in the final appendix, a notably more complicated but not especially more rewarding approach to large-scale battles. Now, according to the book, the way that the game was intended to be played is for the players to start as knights during the rule of Uther Pendragon, Arthur's father, and then to control their knight and his descendants for about 90 years until a little while after the fall of Camelot. At the same time, however, in order to span the entirety of medieval history during which Arthurian literature was prominent, the game attempts to span over half a millennium, causing the European culture in the game to advance by about 100 years every 15 years, so that those 90 years see an advancement in technology and culture from around 500 A.D. to about 1100 A.D. And if you're confused by that, wait until you hear that absolutely none of that information is in this book, which only covers things as they are at the start during Uther's reign in 500-something. 
In order to get the campaign information, you need a separate book, The Great Pendragon Campaign. This is apparently the book that tells you about what's going on, ties things into Arthurian literature, including information on various knights and what they're up to, and provides information on the advancements of the various centuries squeezed into those 90 years. Personally, though, I'm not sure I'd bother. The game has plenty of charm as it is. Uh, you're medieval knights, you run around doing quests, achieving glory, and establishing a dynasty. Now, making you do that in the shadows of figures like Arthur and Lancelot, well, it might be nice to bump into them once, to be sure, as a fun little cameo, but if your game world is being racked as Mordred destroys Arthur's kingdom, or everyone's on a great hunt for the Grail, well, are your PCs really going to want to go do their own thing aside from that? No! They'll want to get right in on the action, and then you'll either need to let them outshine the heroes of Arthurian legend, changing history and eventually rendering that campaign setting book worthless, or else force them to watch helplessly as the NPC knights do their thing. Obviously, you can run it whatever way you want, of course, but I think that the game system does a good job of capturing the essence of Arthurian literature that we don't really need Arthur himself to cameo, let alone feature prominently. Along those lines, it's worth noting that the default state of the game is magic-free. This doesn't mean that the book doesn't support magic. It does, albeit in a magic-does-whatever-the-GM-wants-it-to sort of way. Just that it never assumes it. If you want to run a game set in a perfectly mundane version of medieval Europe, you don't need to do a single thing to the game. Just don't go out of your way to add dragons, trolls, or magic, and that's exactly what you'll have. At the same time, of course, you do have access to those tools to put magic in if you want. Again, though, remember that the rules for it are pretty not like rules at all. Ultimately, I would have liked to see two major things out of this book that I didn't get. One of them, as I talked a bit about a bit earlier, is a better simulation for your knight's home life. This isn't just child-rearing, it's things like managing your manor and estates and presiding in justice over your townsfolk. For that matter, it would be nice if there were rules for keeping your peasants happy and not revolting, uh, and for managing growth of your estates and possibly of the community. I know that fostering growth in the community and keeping peasants from revolting are more concerns of the later Middle Ages and perhaps the modern era, but they feel like they tie in strongly to the idea of being a noble, lesser though you may be, and having something to rule over. You want to make it a nice place, right? Of course, I'm sure the author would say that knights in Pendragon should be busy questing, and that brings me to my other complaint. I would have liked to have seen some more quest ideas. Sure, I can come up with a few of my, for myself. You're hunting a particularly large and deadly or fantastic animal. You're out to slay a particularly dangerous outlaw. You want to recover a relic from somewhere. A woman gave you some ridiculous tax to prove your love. But they don't have a lot of oomph, sparkle, or pizzazz. There's not that much magic there. A couple dozen adventure ideas with a little bit of sparkle and polish would make it a lot easier for me as a GM to come up with the kinds of cool adventure ideas that are really going to make me want to use this product, especially ones with a more specifically Arthurian bent. Uh, while I'm certainly an accomplished enough GM to come up with adventure ideas, I'm not that well as as acquainted with King Arthur and his knights, and so it would have been nice to have a little bit more of these are what Arthurian adventures are as opposed to for example, D&D or Pathfinder. So, all of that said, what's the bottom line? It's a solid game, no question about it. It won't be for everyone. If you can't stand it when someone points out that medieval society was more different from modern society, and say it's unlikely that any of the peasants have anything at all to do in the middle of winter, so they're certainly not outworking the fields, or something to that effect, this probably won't be the game for you. If you refuse to play paladins in D&D because they're always boring and stupid, look elsewhere. But if you like medieval history, and Arthurian literature, and chivalry, and courtly romance, you may well find it hard not to fall in love with this game. 
The complaints I listed above are easily overcome by a creative GM willing to do a little work, as are the other major issues with the system, like the lack of backgrounds besides Simric and the potential dangers of the personality trait system. The core rulebook can be downloaded from DriveThruRPG for $17.50 at the moment, which is notably more than most of the products we review here, but the book is notably longer. It comes out to about $0.07 cents per page. Of course, if you intend to get the Great Pendragon campaign as well, that's another $25 for something like 400 more pages of content, albeit somewhat more limited in scope. You can get the two together, however, plus the Pendragon Game Master Characters book, which contains statistics for a number of the characters from the campaign, for only $35. If you're looking to try something new, you could do a lot worse. And now that we've exhausted that in particular review, and you know all about nobles in Pendragon, I'm going to go ahead and hand you over to Josh, who's going to tell you a little bit about how to use nobles in your game. Alright, now I'd like to take a moment to talk about using nobles in your game. Since most fantasy games take place in societies which closely resemble those of Earth's past, and since nobility was a very pervasive and powerful element of those societies, it's only natural that your fantasy game will likely feature nobles at one point or another. But what can you do with those nobles, and what role should they serve in your game? Well, there's a lot of things you can do with nobles in your game. Sure, the possibilities aren't quite endless, but as with nearly anything else, you could use nobles as a medium to express a great number of ideas and evoke a wide range of images. I want to talk about a few things that nobles are well suited to conveying, as well as just a little bit about how to get the most out of your nobles. The first question you should ask yourself when creating a noble character, or even when creating the concept of nobility for a nation-state uh, in your game, is what ultimately do you want their noble or that nobility to convey to your players. As I said before, nobility is particularly well suited to conveying a number of things. Since the nobility sits at the top of a society, they are uniquely positioned to show your characters the height of your fantasy culture. Their dress, mannerisms, personal tastes, and even home decor should reflect the pinnacle of your made-up society, and give the players a window into your imagined culture that the common folk, burdened with the stress of a peasant's life, couldn't really provide. Since this is going to be a relatively subtle effect, I personally think that, there, that it's something all nobles should do, as it won't likely interfere with your nobles doing any of the other things that you might need them to convey or showing off any of the other imagery you might want to evoke. Uh, on the other hand, if immersing your players in your made-up culture is particularly important to you, you might decide to play up this angle and really show it to them almost to the exclusion of other things you might want to do with your nobility, uh, particularly if they aren't going to be major uh, characters so much as a background element to, uh, to show off your overall game setting. Conversely, if your players are already very familiar with that culture, or if that culture isn't very important to your game, maybe it's a dungeon crawl where they're going to spend most of their time killing minotaurs, and what the society's like doesn't really matter that much, then you might only want to give a sort of passing nod to this sort of uh, show-off culture element of nobility. Uh, but you should still at least give it that passing nod and let a, uh, let a little bit of light in on your fantasy culture. The next thing you might want to use your nobles for is to reinforce one or more stereotypes about nobility. We all have preconceptions about what nobility is like, and fantasy media typically creates their noble characters to fit one of these preconceived notions. Crafting your nobility to follow one of these stereotypes has a few advantages. Like I mentioned, we all have preconceptions about nobility, and creating your nobility in the image of those preconceptions will help your players relate to the situation, and validating their opinions can produce more natural role-playing. While using another stereotype can force your players to consider ideas from other angles and can provide a role-playing challenge. 
Additionally, if your nobility tends to fit a single mold, it provides a useful contrast when creating a specific noble who doesn't necessarily follow that mold, and that will help you have that in particular character stand out better from the background. Uh, additionally, it gives you a good starting place for guys who are really going to fit the mold, and it, it lends more credibility to their, uh, to their behavior. Along similar lines, nobles are excellent for examining social issues, uh, especially as they relate to the disparity of wealth between upper and lower classes of society. Uh, the opulence of nobles and their attitudes towards the uh, common people can speak volumes, both about the contentment of the citizenry as well as the disposition of the people in an area. Uh, you know, if the nobles are very cruel and uh, uncaring, but the peasants are willing to accept that, it shows a more submissive culture. Uh, and it can be uh, useful in examining that sort of issue. Uh, in some cases, you can even use nobility and their uh, and the position offered by nobility to illustrate the different relationships between the inherent status granted by noble birth and status that's gained through wealth or through uh, through actions later on. Um, finally, since nobles are nearly invariably politically important, they allow you a chance to discuss the local political situation and provide you a means for the players to take an active role in politics. In addition to providing information on the political situation and facilitating a way for players to interact in the political theater, nobles can offer opinions of the sort that inflame your players' personal political passions. Indeed, nobles are actually an excellent way to discuss real-world issues through fantasy analogs. Thanks for that, Josh. I just wanted to chime in really quick as well on the subject of, uh, specifically you were talking about, he was talking about nobles and preconceptions about nobles, and I wanted to, to talk a little bit about that as well um specifically preconceptions about different types of nobility and ways that you can use that so for example um those of you who don't know that much about typical medieval history or whatever may not necessarily know off the top of your head whether a baron outranks a duke or a count or you, you basically you know that there's the king and then a bunch of other people below that and then you you might know that like knights and lords tend to be lower if they don't have any other titles. So, uh, just first of all, for your general edification, while of course you can have whatever system you want in your game, uh, what players who know anything about noble titles will be expecting is that the lowest level of nobility is the knight, above which there is the lord, uh, and then the baron or count, depending on what it is those two are about equ equivalent, and then above that you have dukes, princes, and kings in that order. Uh, similarly though, uh, in addition to in addition to that, sometimes you can, especially if your players are aware of that, you you can really get a lot of mileage and and send your players some messages about characters depending on that title. So, for example, if all of the uh, if all of the dukes and everyone are particularly deferential to a baron, uh, or if people give the baron more respect than they are giving to uh, to higher ranking nobles then that might be a clue that that Baron is up to something, or he has something else going on, or whatever. And it may make your players sit up and take notice. Um, similarly, if everyone ignores the king, then you can guess he's probably a puppet, etc. Um, also, about the different types of, of nobility, uh, in addition to everyone having preconceived conceptions about nobles in general, uh, I've found that people tend to have preconceived conceptions about specific noble titles. So, for example, if you have a king, he could be a wise and just king, he could be an evil tyrant, he could be a puppet king. Um, I, I think those are there's probably a couple of other ones, but those are the ones that come immediately to mind. If you go down to Duke, though, you have basically two types. You have the uh, 
you have the the sort of um, bluff general sort of type, and then you have the uh, you have the scheming, backstabbing, looking to become the king type. Um, princes tend to either be handsome and and charming, or else they are uh, spoiled brats. Uh, barons are greedy. All barons. There are no barons that aren't greedy, um, etc. Uh, in short, if you want a noble that your your players will inherently trust from the beginning and won't have unnecessarily unnecessary suspicions about, I would make him a lord, uh, just because those tend not to have as many immediate negatives about them. Uh, but again, you can always subvert that. Perhaps the uh, perhaps the you need a red herring for uh, for something, and you throw in the baron because no one likes barons. Or perhaps there's a vampire. Throw in a count. Your PCs will immediately assume that uh, that the count is the vampire and the baron is the person who uh, who did whatever crime it was, and then they can be wrong because maybe these are just nice people who happen to have been born into noble families. So those are some thoughts on that. Now that we've got that out of the way, we're going to go ahead and move on to a little section we like to call Best Beasts. All right, so moving on to Best Beasts, it's time once again for that little segment where we take a fantasy monster and determine whether or not it's cool. Bear in mind that the only thing we're judging them on here is raw coolness. It doesn't matter if they're powerful, effective, or just plain mean to throw at your characters. The only judgment here is whether or not they're cool. Today, we're looking at a real beast in the form of the Tyrannosaurus Rex. This won't even really be an issue, of course. Everyone knows that dinosaurs are cool. If you want to make something more cool, you basically never go wrong if you add a few dinosaurs. I mean, we all loved Jurassic Park, didn't we? And, well, it's just sort of become industry standard that if you want something to be extra awesome with a capital A, your options are to throw in robots, pirates, ninjas, or dinosaurs. Though really, the preference is for two of these. Dinosaurs are in the big four of awesome. And of all the dinosaurs, none is more iconic than the Tyrannosaurus Rex. I mean, it's right there in the name. He's the bloody king of dinosaurs. Through the transitive properties of cool, that's essentially like being the king of awesome. I mean, sure, if you wanted, you could make your PCs fight a dragon, and that'd probably be deadlier on average than a T-Rex, but it's also what they'll be expecting. Throw a T-Rex at them all of a sudden, though, and they won't know what hit them. I guess that's the thing about creatures that have been dead for tens of millions of years. People just aren't expecting them. And that, combined with its ability to swallow people whole, combines to make the Tyrannosaurus Rex into quite possibly one of the most frightening monsters you can spring on your PCs. An apex predator from the primal dawn of time, it can inspire a lot more fear than any dragon, even ones over twice as deadly, and I think that that's what makes the T-Rex the king of cool. Yeah, T-Rexes, they're cool. When you're six. I mean, look at the thing. It's the, it's the perfect monster to appear to children. It's big, with big, nasty teeth. But it also has tiny little arms, which make it look ridiculous. Uh, it also has a huge tail. But the monster doesn't have a tail attack. What's up with that? All right, and then let, let's talk a little bit about the T-Rex and that dragon. Let's, let's go ahead and run down a little checklist of cool things between the two. Let's see here. Flying, that's a cool thing. Dragon? Yup. T-Rex? No. Breathing fire, that's cool. Dragon, yes. T-Rex, no. Talking, it's always cool to have a talking monster. Dragons, yes, they can do it. T-Rex, no. Tail attack, the dragon has one, the T-Rex doesn't. What's up with that? (laughs) 
All right, magic powers, dragons got that too. Not for the T-Rex. Yeah, I mean, you get the idea. It just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. The one is just better than the other. Finally, those of you uh, who were tuning in a few weeks ago will remember that one of our clone minions, Carl, ultimately almost managed to kill a T-Rex. He just ran out of arrows. If he had a couple more, it would have died. It's not cool to almost lose to Carl, okay? And uh, and that that's all she wrote. All right. Well, Carl aside, um, and the fact that the uh, that the T Rex can in fact swallow you whole, something cool that the dragon can't do. Uh, it's time to go ahead and put our differences aside and talk about what we actually think and whether the T Rex really uh, really is cool. So I think ultimately uh, we'll both agree here that yes, dinosaurs can be cool. The difficulty with using them, though, is that you need to make sure that they're in a setting where they won't feel contrived, um, which can be difficult to do in a, in a fantasy setting. It's one thing if, you know, your PCs accidentally wind up teleporting to the land that time forgot, or if they go back in time, or, or something that would make that more accessible. But if it just turns out that, for example, I don't know, uh, halflings that live on the plains happen to ride dinosaurs all the time in a setting that's all otherwise full of robots and uh, magic punk. Well, that's just going to feel a little bit out of place, and and that can definitely hurt the coolness factor. Uh, am I am I on board here, Josh? Yeah, I think we're more or less in agreement. The T-Rex is a cool thing. Uh, using it in your game can be difficult, and if you're not very careful, it will end up ruining everything cool about the T-Rex. Uh, so just just be careful if you're thinking about using dinosaurs in your game. It's one of those things you're really going to have to think hard about. Uh, they'd lose a lot of their mystique if you treat them like animals. Now it's time for something new. If you'll recall, a few weeks back, I reviewed the Pathfinder Bestiary 3. My ultimate conclusion was that the book was almost certainly worth your time and money, even if some of the monsters weren't as cool or innovative as they probably should have been. That said, with something like 300 monsters in all, I didn't have the option to go very far in depth on each one. I found this unfortunate because I feel like I have a lot of things to say about most of the individual monsters in the book. So, in a new segment entitled Bestiary Breakdown, we're going to take a closer look at some bestiary monsters with a look at the pros and cons for using them in your game, and some ways you might go about that, and if necessary, how you can make them a little more usable. There's no better place to start than the beginning, so why don't we take a moment to look at the Adaro, the very first monster in the Bestiary 3. This CR3 monstrous humanoid seems on the surface to be a pretty typical shark man, and frankly, it's a little hard to explain why you would ever really need to use one of these instead of, for example, giving a Sahagin or a Merfolk a few levels in fighter. They do have a couple of interesting things to say about them, however. First of all, they coat their spears in a poison that paralyzes their victims. This is kind of cool and has potential for abducting surfacers and then sacrificing them in evil rites, or something to that effect, but instead the Adaro apparently prefer to immediately eat the paralyzed victims. This bothers me, because even though the poison is technically injury-only, the Adaro have no resistance to it, and it seems like a bad idea to deliberately poison your food. That habit could probably be adjusted, however, by the GM, and the Adaro allowed to keep their underwater grottos full of captive food stock. The other interesting thing about the Adaro is its rain lust. You see, when it's raining, the Adaro goes into a sort of frenzy as the rage spell. Mechanically, it's not all that interesting, but it hints at the possibilities of a culture that might be fun to explore if the GM had the time to flesh it out dramatically. I should also mention that they can telepathically communicate with sharks, and the description of this ability implies that the sharks will simply obey such commands, but it's not actually very clear. 
Finally, it's worth noting that the Adaro statistics are notably better than his CR should allow, according to Paizo's Monster Statistics by CR table. Their AC and hit points are fine, but their attack bonus, average damage, the DC of their poison, and their saving throws are all above the high number listed, and nothing's below, so bear that in mind when using them. The next monster is the Adherer, another CR3 monstrous humanoid, though this one has a sticky skin instead of being aquatic. Personally, I think that this monster is kind of boring. Whenever you hit it, you need to make a reflex save or your weapon gets stuck and you lose it. You can try to pull it off, but you can't use disarm or steal combat maneuvers to do it. You just have to make a strength check you're not likely to succeed on, plus accept an attack of opportunity that will probably end in a free grapple attempt from the monster, which takes no penalties from being in a grapple and gains a big bonus to grappling. In short, it's a frustrating monster that your PCs won't appreciate unless they deal fire damage to it to burn away its stickiness. Far from an obvious solution, and one that will render the Adherer pretty boring anyway. Their DR over dash and spell resistance won't make them any more enjoyable to fight either. In fact, this is another monster with numbers above its CR. It does notably more damage than it should, its AC is too high, and between its stickiness and its various defensive abilities, that should probably it should probably be, probably be closer to CR 4. About the only good thing I have to say about the Adherer is that its fluff section, despite being short, is fairly interesting. These creatures apparently are created from humans by an unknown process for unknown reasons by something on the ethereal plane. What's abducting humans and transforming them into monsters? Why? Will the PCs stop it in time? Sounds like a fun adventure. The last monster we'll be looking at from the Bestiary 3 today is the Adlet, a CR-10 medium-sized humanoid that essentially boils down to being an anthropomorphic wolf. No part of this creature's fluff explains why, as a medium-sized humanoid, they need no less than 15 racial hit dice, when most medium-sized humanoids only have three or four, if that many. Uh, in general, the Adlet's fluff talks about how they're misunderstood and how they're in touch with nature, and each one knows its place in the world in a way that reeks of self-insertion wish, wish fulfillment to me, and I suspect that these were someone's pet race that got shoehorned in here. It would explain the bad fluff and the ridiculous power of the race by comparison to, say, humans, elves, or even gnolls, Though, in fairness, they aren't terribly powerful for their CR. In fact, they're probably the only one of these three who falls more or less in line with the CR they're sporting. I don't really have anything to more, to s more to say about these. If you don't mind super powerful wolf men, or you want to explore the idea of noble savage humanoids who are perfectly in tune with nature and just plain spiritually better, if horribly persecuted due to the limited understanding of those lesser species, then I guess this might be a good race for you. If you wanted to strip away about 10 racial hit dice and adjust their magic frost breath accordingly, they might make a decent humanoid race. And now that that's done, we're going to go ahead and hand you over to Josh, who's going to cover Game Mastery. And now on to Game Mastery, where we're going to be looking at 10 interesting and exciting noblemen, because there's nothing worse than your PCs thinking all the world's nobles are boring and foppish, even if the majority of them are just that. Number one, Lord Governor Rupert Basing, or Rupert the Ruthless, as the locals still jokingly call him, was once a pirate of some small renown. He was awarded his title as steward of a remote island by the king in order to keep him out of royal waters. While Rupert enjoys the life of luxury his fearsome reputation and elusiveness earned him all those years ago, he finds government boring and his wife to be a bit of a nag. Always on the lookout for the chance to head back out into the open ocean, Rupert frequently stirs up trouble in his own lands in the hope of creating some excitement. Number two, the Duchess Silvira Plate is technically a very important and influential person. In fact, though, her lands haven't been important since her grandfather was in charge of things, and the Duchess, being fourth in line for the throne, has very little chance of seeing any real power. She doesn't let this get her down, though. No, it allows her to pursue her favorite hobby, occult research. 
Naturally, she practices in secret, so only the most cunning and guileful of her household staff have any inkling that Silviera is perhaps the leading authority on matters relating to the darker lore. It's not to say that local adventurers aren't very much aware of the Duchess, however, since she notices strange events more readily than her uninitiated contemporaries, and thus requests the aid of local heroes with great frequency. Number three. Ivan Carler might be the ruler of the desert province of Sin in name, but Durag the Fist is the land's true master. A cruel fire giant separated from his tribe following the brutal clan war, Durag now makes his home in Sin's Rocky Mountains. A few well-placed threats against Ivan's family, and Durag soon had the so-called Lord bowing and scraping, eager to do his bidding. Taking great enjoyment from the Lord's humiliation, Durag often demands the Lord create new and increasingly depraved laws, which both humiliate and oppress the populace. For his influence, however, Durag lives humbly in an unadorned cave outside the city, in a secret known only to the Lord and a handful of uh, trusted palace advisors. Number four. Rakshasa rarely rule openly and are considered to be quite wicked by most scholars. And that makes Hashir, the good, something of an oddity. Or at least it would if he were actually a Rakshasa. In fact, Hashir is actually a human mage by the name of Tathi, who years ago assassinated the lord of Samskir in order to end his abusive reign. Not wanting the land to fall into chaos or anarchy, Tathi assumed the old lord's form and began to rule in his place, albeit with a much more kindly hand. Years later, when one of the Lord's sons began to grow suspicious about his father's behavior, Tathi was confronted by a group of powerful heroes who demanded to know what was going on. Tathi, surrounded by no minor nobles at court, knew that no one would likely accept the truth, and with mercenaries uh, showing steel, Tathi assumed the form of a Rakshasa and claimed that he had secretly ruled the kingdom for generations. In the ensuing battle, Tathi destroyed the adventures, and in so doing assured that the other nobles, fearful of his power, would follow his lead. So now Tathi watches over Samskir as Hashir, and an imposing and terrifying leader whose demeanor matches that of a wicked tyrant, but whose policies and actions betray a gentle soul and great foresight. Number five, Nibin is the longest reigning nobleman on the High Council of Vicius, and his good health and gnomish blood may mean that he might have hundreds of years left to rule. For over 250 years, Nibin's chief concern has been the attitude of the people, and he has become well-known for elaborate displays of entertainment. As a direct result of his influence, Vicius has become a world leader in the arts, particularly drama, and has become home to several great arenas, an elaborate opera house, and dozens of theaters. All this entertainment has endeared Nibin to the people for generations, and he has become one of the most popular leaders throughout the world. Still, many nobles find issue with Nibin believing his spending to be out of control and feeling that the money could better be spent on infrastructure or defense. In the face of this opposition, the Jolly Gnome is rather dismissive, comfortable that with the support of the people will give weight to his positions. In his spare time, Nibelin enjoys writing plays, entertaining visitors, and distilling whiskey. Number six. Isabella Paola was a, once a queen before the Eidolon Imperial Army arrived at her doorstep. Faced with the prospect of a genocide, Isabella surrendered peacefully to the empire. For her cooperation, Isabella was made a duchess. As a beautiful woman whose surrender was motivated by compassion, Isabella's fame quickly with rose within the empire, and the powers that be decided that they could use such a charismatic figure as a political tool. Isabella is now regarded as a ce celebrity throughout the empire, preaching the Eidolon party line uh, to conquered and embittered people. Sickened by the cheers of broken people drinking idolin propaganda like milk, Isabella has turned to wine for comfort. 
Behind the scenes, the former queen has become a drunkard, and many within the Empire's nobility are starting to wonder whether or not her political value is worth the effort of keep covering up her alcohol-fueled disgraces. Number seven. The 15th son of a minor king, Ericus, is the lord of and master of approximately 50 acres of farmland in the backcountry. Most consider Ericus to be unimportant, and Ericus certainly isn't about to argue, uh, as his kingdom consists of only about 11 farmers who uh, work his land. Still, Ericus has managed to achieve some small fame as a poet and is widely read throughout the world. Ericus uh, commonly invites adventurers and other influential individuals to his country estate in order to write poems about their exploits. While the only recompense Ericus offers for these tales is a fantastic home-cooked meal and good company, many come simply to hear their deeds in poetic form. Leanne Licious, or number eight, sorry. Leanne Licious is one of the most controversial figures in the kingdom of Akar, a thief and assassin who caught the eye of Van Licious when she broke into his estate and murdered his wife. As it happened, the former Lady Licious had been blackmailing the Lord, and he was grateful for her death allowing Leanne to keep what she stole as a reward for doing away with her and complimenting her on her beauty, Van began courting Leanne almost immediately. The two fell in love and were soon wed. While nothing can be proven, much of the kingdom believes that Leanne has been deceiving or holding Van hostage in order to shield her from justice. Number 9. Once called Tivius Noring, the, city, the first of the city Canis has taken the name Gots following his conversion to the cult of Belchus. Soon after his conversion, Gots demanded his people convert. Uh, also, those who refused were being sacrificed to their dark god. Gots has since become a high priest of the Wicked Temple and has been known to revel in the dark rituals and wicked practices of his newfound church. Number 10. Byron III has ruled his lands for over a thousand years, resurrected as a zombie following his death and restored some of his intellect. Forced to rule, Byron was a slave to the very people he watched over, and for years Byron to toiled to the benefit of his people before his will fully reasserted itself. Now, he uses his nearly absolute power and deathless quality to quietly torture the citizenry, inflicting pain on them and vengeance for his imprisonment. Alright, and now it's time for us to move on to Seed to Story, uh, that segment of the show where we roll a die percent, consult the 100 adventure ideas table from the DMG, and then try to turn that into a fun and exciting adventure idea. So without further ado, why don't we go ahead and roll those dice. I see 75, so that is going to give us... Treants in the woods are threatened by a huge fire of mysterious origin. So... <clears throat> definitely something that we've seen around. You think of triants, you think of, uh, I guess, typically loggers, uh, but, you know, when you think of triants, you think of people who need help. Um, so, why don't we start with, uh, obviously, um, if, if the triants are threatened by a huge fire of mysterious origin, then uh, there, there certainly is a lot of adventure room to be played with the PCs rushing around, playing firemen, trying to save the specific trees and things. That kind of sounds to me a lot like what we talked about last week, where we had the uh, where we had the the PCs running damage control on the mysterious mist. So maybe maybe that's not quite what's going on here. Maybe there isn't a, a fire breaking out. Perhaps part of the mysterious thing about the fire is that it can suddenly appear and go without any warning. Maybe one or two trees have been uh, have burst into flame spontaneously, and then the treants were actually literally threatened 
with some sort of magic message from the big bad who's telling them that unless they do something or, or something, unless something happens, uh, then more of them will continue to burn and, and he wants their help or, or acquiescence in something. Well, now that's an interesting twist. Um, so now we've got a couple of things we need to look at. Firstly, we got to decide what the uh, what the big bad wants, why he's bothering to threaten Treants. So it should probably have something to do with the forest and something that the Treants can actually affect. Maybe there's uh, maybe there's some other race in the forest, goblins or something, and this guy wants them gone. Or maybe there's a town nearby and he wants them gone. Or, uh, or maybe he just wants the Treants to get the hell out because he wants to start logging. Uh, those are all definitely possibilities. It's also possible that the Treants, uh, being, you know, stereotypically uh, wise, sage, slow-moving sorts of people, um, maybe they have some sort of relic or something that has been entrusted to them that's hidden somewhere in the, the mystical forest and the, the bad guy wants it, and unless they give it up, or maybe maybe he just wants to be able to pass through the forest, though that's a little that's not very sinister. Uh, he could also be trying to mobilize them into some sort of army. Yeah, uh, he might have a request for them. Uh, I think personally, what what I like for this adventure because I, I see the adventure more or less going with the the end game here is probably if we if we just sort of keep everything on the default track, going to be the treants ask the PCs for help dealing with whatever the problem is. Uh, probably by going and confronting the bad guy. Uh, so, so personally, what I like for this is uh, is Treants. I mean, we all see them in like the Lord of the Rings or whatever. That they're an ancient people who may know a lot of things, but they're also kind of famous for forgetting things. I kind of like the idea of a powerful mage who's uh, who's got a lust for this in particular piece of ancient knowledge that his powerful divination has told him is known only to the tree folk, but they've forgotten and are scared stiff that he's going to burn them out. They've been trying to delay him for some time now, and now they need some real help to deal with the problem before they're incinerated. I like it. That's good. Uh, on top of which, it also opens up room for something else the PCs can do besides a hunt and kill. Uh, if the Treants don't remember... Maybe there's, I mean, the, the obvious thing is maybe, the, uh, maybe the, the wizard's divination is wrong and the PCs can go track down the information elsewhere and give it to him. But better yet, maybe, uh, maybe the Treants have hazy half-rememberings and what the PCs really need to do is go track down uh, the specific, what, what was it in Lord of the Rings, Entwife, uh, or, you know, or, or some specific, maybe there's a stone, but some sort of trigger that will help bring back the Treant's memories. Once they bring back this special thing and show it to the Treant, then the Treant can remember. Or maybe, maybe even there's a magic potion that the, they need to get for the Treant that will bring back perfect clarity of memory and, and maybe that or whatever the case, instead of having the, the Treant say, we need you to go hunt down and kill this guy, one, not a particularly Treant sort of approach, and two, not necessarily the most interesting sort of quest in the world. Now the Treants can have the PCs do something else vis-a-vis -vis tracking this down. Of course, if that's what you're planning, you'll, you'll have to be aware that your PCs are probably going to have their first instinct be to go track down and kill the wizard. So you may need to have some reason why they can't do that. Uh, perhaps they don't actually know where the wizard comes from and he only shows up in um, projected images. Or maybe the wizard is just too powerful, something that is never a good idea to bank on in your game. Uh, but whatever the case, that, that's definitely something to bear in mind. So why don't we go with there's, there's some, sort of, um, some sort of item that the Treons need in order to help them remember 
what's going on, and we'll need the PCs to go through some sort of quest to get it. Yeah. So okay, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and go with the the triants are half remembering, or whatever, and so they they need either to be uh, they either need the PCs to psychoanalyze them or or go fetch some some kind of item, something that that is gonna be easy for a for a tree folk to overlook might be good. Uh, some, something that, that they might think of is every day until they see it. Uh, perhaps there's a specific stone face that, that, or rock outcropping that has an unusual feature and that, uh, that would become immediately obvious to PCs steeped in arcane lore. Um, and, but maybe the tree folk are just like, well, yeah, there's rocks over there. Well, what of it? Um, and so bringing them there could make them remember or uh, or perhaps they uh they never really forgot maybe they've uh they've just told the pcs that they have and perhaps we can make our tree folk insidious uh, it also helps answer our question of why the pcs don't just run off and kill the wizard maybe one of them rolls sense motive and decides that that maybe he doesn't want to go murder some poor wizard uh because the tree folk want to keep them. maybe they're not being completely honest with the pcs and need to be coaxed into uh, into giving up the information peacefully. Uh, I think that it would be kind of fun to have the PC or the tree folk try to trick the PCs into doing their bidding, and bank on their uh, their innocent sort of appearance in order to uh, to accomplish that. That's true. You definitely don't expect any deceit from your uh, from your average treant. Um, whatever the case, um, the uh, the treants are looking for the PCs to to go get something or bring them to some place. Um, which then probably, for the sake of simplicity, the PCs are going to find somewhere in this wood. Uh, the wood itself, especially if the treants are evil, uh, may have a, a great number of dangers lurking in it. Everyone knows, obviously, the giant spiders, but, you know, there, there are other things you can find in forests, and if you go flip through one or more bestiaries, you'll find some good things at whatever CR you're looking for. Once the PCs fight through a few of those, uh, there may also be some mystical puzzles and things. Perhaps there's sacred groves that you need to do special stuff to get into, I think would be a good thing. That would explain why the wizard or the, the treants, depending... Uh, are unable to get there. And then once the PCs have the item, they then need to decide whether they really want to uh, hand it over to the tree folk, who may or may not be up to some badness, or the wizard, who, if he exists at all, uh, may or may not also have nefarious plans for it that might, for example, be worse than watching the forest burn down. So uh, then once you have that, the PCs will, will need to confront whoever it is that they think is truly behind the uh, the thing and get that taken care of and then from there you can see where things go so i think we got a uh, got a solid uh, foundation there and hopefully you got something out of it that's all the time we have for this week though so i hope you've enjoyed nobility week be sure to tune in next week when we'll be going over lots of other things i'd tell you more but it's not a theme week thank you very much for having uh, for listening to us and have a great day